0: From beanies to carry bags, and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. You're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the program. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Thank you for joining us on this live broadcast. Great to have you with us here on Thursday. Uh, We're going to be joined uh, very shortly by a very special guest, I'm very much looking forward to this segment. We're going to be joined by David Miller. Uh, he's an academic from the UK. He's going to be joining us on the Live Link. We're going to have a very pithy discussion about propaganda, and we're also going to be talking about foreign policy as it goes regarding uh, Israel and Palestine broadly uh, across the NATO sphere and the media reactions to the events that are happening right now. This is going to be a great discussion, so we're looking forward to that. And then later in the second hour, we'll be uh, looking forward at trends uh, into 2024. We'll be talking with Christian James. He's our research assistant for the show. We'll also get a hot take from Basil Valentine, get his reaction uh, on the comments from David Miller. This is a broad discussion. We're going to do our best to cover all the bases on this as we normally do uh, on the program. Now, there's been some very disturbing events that we're going to Relay. Uh, this is breaking news, uh, in fact. And uh, the breaking news uh, regarding Gaza right now, uh, we can report uh, that uh, one of the last hospitals in Gaza, one of the last main hospitals, medical hubs, is now surrounded by Israeli tanks. Uh, the Israeli uh, forces are moving in on one of the last working hospitals in Gaza. So uh, we're just reporting that. uh, We're going to get more information from that. Hopefully, Basil will be able to weigh in a little bit uh, in the second hour on that important story. So we'll look forward to that. Now, that's very disturbing, of course, because uh, over 35 uh, medical facilities, major medical facilities have been either bombed, destroyed, um, put out of order, or uh, completely evacuated because of the military incursions by the israeli forces into gaza what does that mean that means that you only have a few medical establishments serving uh over 2 million people uh, in Gaza. You have nearly a million people displaced from northern Gaza after the uh, bombing and the sort of ongoing genocide that we're all witnessing, that the world is seeing, in fact, that South Africa has now filed uh, an invocation of the Genocide Convention uh, against Israel. That's all in motion right now. We'll be talking more about that uh, during the program because there's been some interesting developments on that front. That is full steam ahead. Uh, We've had a look at the eighty four-page report filed by South Africa. We're going to encourage people to go ahead and read that as well if you're able to. we posted that and we have links via sam husseini's substack report which we put up uh uh, we're linked we've linked to it via the interview we did with sam husseini a couple of days ago you go to at 21 wire that's our social media feed there on x twitter you'll find the links there i encourage everybody to read this report because it's very well written it lays out the entire history the broad historical context and i think the important takeaway here is that this story did not begin on October 7th. And there's been a lot of effort, uh, and we'll talk about that with David Miller in a couple of minutes, but there's been a lot of effort to frame uh, the events of the last three months as if they just started, as if history just started on October 7th, as if there was peace and tranquility uh, in the Gaza Strip. In fact, if you go, Israel violated the ceasefire on October 6th, on October 6th, if you go back and actually check the actual data on that, but that doesn't matter because there's been violations all the way back. This is an ongoing occupation. In fact, the story began in 1948. That's how long the story has been going. But if you live in the United States and in the West, uh, and you're a, a member of the, uh, goldfish media consumer community, uh, a few trips around the ball and you'll forget that history didn't begin on October 7th. So we're here to remind you of the context. Great report by Sam Husseini on his substack. We've linked to that as well at 21st Century Wire. Go ahead and have a look. I'll try to drop some of these links if we can into the TNT chat community if we're able to during the program. Now we're going to break in a few minutes. I think we're going to be able to connect David Miller uh, very shortly. Looking forward to this discussion. Does a great program by the way which is on press TV, who's doing outstanding work uh, on this conflict right now. Uh, It's called Palestine Declassified, and he does co-host that with Chris Williamson, former British MP from Derby. Uh, So David Miller is doing outstanding work there. He is one of the leaders in uh, propaganda studies I would say uh, in the world right now himself Piers Robinson a great cohort Mark Crispin Miller uh, a great group of people have been uh, providing uh, an education a free service of education to the public on propaganda how to decipher it how it's disseminated how it affects our political economy uh, in the West so a great uh, absolutely a great authority on this topic looking forward to that discussion. There's some other breaking reports that we'll try to share with you um, as they come through the newswire. Uh, suffice to say, uh, there's a lot of commotion right now uh, because of the Jeffrey Epstein client list. And I've got a personal take on this and I'll share I'll share a little bit with you right now. Uh, my take in on, on this story is that when you look back at the Julie Brown's reporting, initial reporting on this story that led to, and then you had the Gawker, uh, Brian's Gawker article with the client flight logs and so forth. You have all that. I didn't see a whole lot new in terms of names in this latest uh, release of the wist- witness testimonies. These documents that have just been put out. There is a bit more context, though. That part is interesting. The question is, is this going to trigger any more uh, legal actions? Are there going to be any more arrests, indictments? Certainly it's possible, but mm, that's the big question. Is there going to be any result from this, or is this going to blow off steam? And, you know, Prince Andrew is already uh settled i don't know multi 14 million dollar uh private lawsuit or whatever on this so i mean he's already paid out i don't think there's going to be any more actions against him uh i could be wrong i'm not a uh, a legal eagle on this but uh it is interesting alan dershowitz is in the frame once again he's tried so hard to get out of the frame mr dershowitz who supposedly volunteered to represent israel uh, in the, uh, international courts of justice defense, which it's going to have to mount in due course very shortly. In fact, Israel says it's going to the world court to defend itself. Anyway, is Dershowitz still going to be the, uh, the legal face of that? Probably not. He's a damaged brand on so many different levels, but, uh, I think that would be kind of an own goal by Israel, but Hey, They've been known to score a few own goals lately, uh, those Israelis. Uh, So I wouldn't be surprised if they choose Alan Dershowitz uh, to mount, to front their lead, to be the face of their legal defense in this historic uh, genocide convention trial, which is going to happen, but this is not going to be an easy one. That's for sure. Uh, There's going to be a lot of flack, a lot of attacks. There's going to be a lot of subterfuge reprisals, all sorts of stuff. Expect it just like you did before the Iraq war. At the UN level, you saw that uh, movie official secrets with Kieran Knightley and that whole story, which chronicled the story of the uh, British whistleblower, Catherine gun, and all of the dirty tricks that were going on behind the scenes with the intelligence services and the UN and the UN security council expect all of that intrigue, all of these dirty tricks, and maybe worse going on around the background of the genocide convention here, because there's a lot to lose for Israel. You're talking about their legacy going forward, their viability as a member of the international community. And that is no small thing. We're going to take a break right now with TNT, today's news talk. And when we come back, We'll connect with David Miller, and we're going to have a very important discussion about what's going on in Gaza, Israel, and the, bro- the broader topic of propaganda in the West. Looking forward to this discussion. I hope you are, too. We'll be right back.
2: TNT Radio's James Freeman. We
1: have new revised figures from the Office for National Statistics showing that legal, that's not illegal, that's legal, net migration to the UK has witnessed one
0: of the largest increases on record. Three quarters of a million additional people are now living in the UK in the space of just one year.
1: A huge number that comes just three years after we left the European Union. Now, I didn't vote for Brexit. um, because of immigration, I voted because of democracy, but millions did vote because they think too many people are coming into the country which makes what the government has allowed to happen an absolute two fingers up to the people and democracy another example if we needed another of how the government does the exact opposite to what the people want and vote for the freeman
0: report and james freeman on today's news talk radio tnt affordable housing we can build that sustainable housing we can build that At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702. Or read more at mitmodular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. Are you sitting comfortably? Oh, yes, yes. And I'll begin. Even when you're just sitting around, we're rocking the talk. Today's News Talk Radio TNT.
1: All right, welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. We're still in hour number one of this live broadcast. I hope you guys can join us. For the rest of the program, we'll be going two hours with a lot of news and analysis, especially in the second hour. We're gonna be covering breaking news. We're gonna get hot takes and updates from our research assistant, also possibly from our commentator, Basil Valentine. Much, much more coming. But right now, we've got a very important discussion uh, that we're going to open up here. And I wanna welcome on to the program uh, fantastic, uh, I would say, authority in the area of propaganda and communications at the government level, especially in times of war and the mass media. David Miller is going to join us right now. He is also the co-host of a great program which appears on Press TV, Palestine Declassified. He's joining us on the line right now. David, how are you?
3: I'm very well, thank you, Patrick.
1: Thanks a lot for joining us, David. I really appreciate it. David, um, as you, we haven't had a discussion on this program yet, uh, I believe, about what's uh, transpired over the last 10 weeks. I think it's important to open up. I'd like to get your general comments. um, Looking back now, uh, we're, you know, three weeks, over 10 weeks into this current phase of this incredible historic event, this crisis that's unfolding. And it's horrific on so many levels. Um, I'd like to get your just opening statement, your general. Thoughts and observations about what has transpired and what you think it means in the broader historical context of this region of the world. And then we're going to get into the topic of propaganda, because this has just been the most incredible roller coaster of disinformation and propaganda. But, David, I'll open up the floor to you on the general subject from October 7th forward. Go ahead.
3: Well, I guess, you know, anytime I'm asked about um, what I think about October the 7th or what happened after it, I would want to say, well, of course, it didn't start on October the 7th, and it didn't even start in 1947-48 with the Nakba and the displacement of three quarters of a million uh, Palestinians. It started, in fact, you know, in the 1840s, 1850s, when the first Zionist settlements weren't even called Zionists at that stage, um, were started. And um, <clears throat> since then, there's, there's been a constant process of, escalating ethnic cleansing, culminating, of course, first of all, in the Nakba, as I said, in '48, and then, of course, in the, uh, the Naxa in 1967, when the Golan uh, and um, Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem, as well as the Sinai Desert, were taken by the Israelis. And, of course, the Sinai was given back as part of the uh, um, deal which was made with the Egyptians, which, of course, has been um, part of the, the history of the, the horror... Uh, an ongoing uh, ethnic cleansing against the Palestinians ever since. So that's the big picture. This is a, uh, a an imposed settler colony, um, predominantly of white European Jews. Uh, of course, since then, the, uh, the Mossad, in particular, took steps to make sure that many millions of other Jews came to uh, what's called Israel from um, North Africa from West Asia and they did that by essentially um, uh, threatening and scaring them out so that now they can say that uh, a bare majority, a, a slight, a, a almost majority, are white Europeans and then there are a whole set, series of others who are what was called Arab Jews back in the day they're now called Mizrahim uh, to give them some kind of Zionist uh, take. So there's that, that's a, that's a complicated story here but in some ways, it's not complicated. This is a, a Zionist settler colony uh, which has always intended to remove the Palestinians. They intended t- to do that from the 1920s and 30s onwards, and they've continued to want to do that. And we've seen that in the plans which have emerged since October the 7th, uh, which have been leaked from various ministries and think tanks, uh, showing that they want to push them out, uh, the, the Palestinians in Gaza out to uh, to the Sinai across the Rafah crossing. And uh, indeed, as we've seen in the news recently, they're trying to push them out to to the Democratic Republic of Congo and uh, to many other places too, uh, to try and solve the Palestinian problem once and for all, as they would see it. But to go back then to your your question, so October 7th, of course, was um, the Palestinian resistance factions led by um, the Qassam Brigades, the military wing of Hamas, because let's remember, Hamas is not... Uh, a military organisation, it's a political resistance movement which has a military wing uh, and disengaged with, along with nine other factions and they, they broke out of what everyone has called an open air prison uh, has been an open air prison since they, they disengaged in 2005 uh, and uh, their objective of course was yes to kill soldiers and uh, secondly to take hostages which they um, did reasonably effectively. And of course, there's a whole series of questions about what else happened that day, which I guess we'll come to in a a minute. But immediately after that prison break, um, a daring prison break, which took, according to all accounts, although there is some dispute about this, took the Israelis by some surprise. Uh, And of course, since then, uh, Israel has decided to indulge a bloodlust, essentially, uh, to uh, attack the Palestinians claiming to be uh, interested in attacking and defeating Hamas but of course transparently actually just being interested in either um bombing and killing Palestinians or um through the bombing and killing frightening the rest away to displace them so they can remove them from Gaza altogether and and they haven't really appreciably uh, dented the command structure of Hamas or indeed any of the other Palestinian resistance factions. The, 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 the most significant attack they've done has been in the last couple of days, where they killed a uh, Hamas um, deputy leader in Beirut, and indeed two Kassam Brigade's uh, commanders. That, that seems to have been the most significant loss that Hamas as a movement has fit, has, has had since September the 7th. So we, we can see perfectly well that while they have demolished 70% of all buildings in Gaza, they haven't managed to demolish even 1% of uh, Hamas's command structure. So we can see it perfectly well that the objective has not been to uh, to destroy Hamas. And in fact, even if it had been their objective, we we have seen since they went into the ground offensive that they have been remarkably ineffective in um, destroying or degrading uh, either the, the, the capacity of Qasem Brigade and Hamas more widely or the other resistance factions because we still have uh, every day rockets being fired including from within parts of north gaza which are supposed to be under the control of the occupation forces so we can see that we have a i mean you want want the big picture we have a situation in which the israelis are losing uh, and in a context where the world is moving from unipolarity where the writ of the us Uh, runs to multipolarity where the U.S.'s word is not the law anymore and so we have a desperate situation as far as the Israelis are concerned that they want to find a way to make sure that the U.S. will support them because they can't carry on without U.S. support as we've already seen and the U.S. is um, becoming increasingly reluctant to openly support them or to come in uh, directly on their side in a conflict and the reason for that is not because they have any great sense of uh, not wanting to be part of genocide they're already uh, up to their bloodstained necks in the genocide but the reason for that is that the us is scared they even although they have a kind of ideology of empire at all costs they are scared let me give you the, the two reasons why I think that's the case just to conclude to conclude uh, which is, first of all, the Operation Protect Prosperity, which was launched when the Ansarallah movement, the government of Yemen, uh, quarantined the whole Red Sea and closed down the uh, Israeli port of Ayat. um uh, And uh, as a result, the the US had this coalition, which they said was going to uh, kick the ass, I suppose the Americans would say, of, uh, of Ansarallah. Uh, and immediately the US Navy said, we haven't got enough boats for this. Secondly, the French, the Germans, and the Italians said, We're not going to be under US command, we're out. And thirdly, the US admitted in the pages of the New York Times, no less, that they were a little bit reluctant to sh- to, to sink uh, Ansarala boats or to attack Yemen directly because what might happen is that Ansarala might sink US boats. And of course, they would. And so they decided they weren't going to attack them, really. And of course, they had done a, a small attack, killed 10 fighters uh, the other day and three speedboats. But the, the US is scared of engaging fully with Antarela. And of course, Im- almost immediately after that, which is my second example, the, the US indicated that its uh, second aircraft carrier was going to be moving away from the eastern Mediterranean and back towards the west. So the, the US is not a dependable ally, and the Israelis are therefore desperate to bring them into the conflict and that's why we've had in the last week uh, the attack uh, in Beirut, uh, the assassination of the senior IRGC commander in Damascus, uh, the attack, uh, the massive bombing in Iran which has killed I think more than 90 people at the, the occasion of the fourth anniversary of the assassination of Council Solomari, the, the, the widely regarded commander of the, the Quds Force which is been responsible for the creation of the Axis and resistance throughout the region. Uh, and of course, um, lastly, a fourth thing, uh, the attack on the, the Iraqi resistance as well. Uh, and that's, that's a very wide-scale attack, obviously directly by the Israelis and indirectly by the Israelis in each case, and of course the intention is to, to cause Ansar and Iran and the Iraqi resistance and Hezbollah to escalate in order that the israelis can bring the americans uh to the the front uh and now i think that's that is destined to fail but uh, i'm going to stop there and let you ask me another question
1: well the i think you've opened up to, uh let's just round off the big picture there uh which you've you've opened up that discussion because it's i think it's a, an important discussion especially going into the new year we're going into 2024 and that is one of the big trends that we and others have identified is we're seeing the emergence of this multipolar world uh, and the, the beginnings of it, you could say what are the, the green shoots uh, to use a, a a common political term they like to use for the economy, the green shoots of a, a multipolar world. But it's it's interesting the Middle East, David, all those things that you just mentioned there. Um, mostly all of those actors, be they state or non-state they are kind of working independently on their own volition there is some coordination and understanding i'm sure at some level but it's not as if you're dealing with a monolithic block here which makes it very difficult i think for the united states which itself is a monolithic uh, uh, imperialist block to to manage all of these different obstacles and problems simultaneously it's really unworkable and i think that's a reality that is just slowly seeping in uh in washington not yet there not yet there but slowly seeping in so you know are we looking at a new middle east uh, david
3: well when you see green shoots of course um what's happened across west asia is part of that process But but we've been seeing this process as you Uh, and no and as everyone knows uh, over the past two years through the NATO and misadventures in in the Ukraine which have now coming to a conclusion falling apart rapidly uh, Russian gains across the front uh, and the Ukrainians being left with no uh, and no uncertainty that actually the u.s and the rest of the allies are not going to be continuing to support them and that they have in fact in the end lost that they will have to concede territory now if anyone thinks that they're going to that's going to end with simply four areas of ukraine ceded to russia which have already uh, voted in referenda to to join russia then they um they need to be thinking a little bit a little bit larger than that because that's not What's going to happen? But the key question, key thing is that this, Ukraine, and what's happening in West Asia, are are both green shoots of the multipolar world. And of course, we see that at a a bigger economic uh, and geopolitical level with the advances of the BRICS. The Saudis have just joined as of the first of January. The Iranians are now part of the BRICS. There are all sorts of other countries vying to become part of the BRICS. And of course, there's the whole question of De-dollarization and and all of those processes, which we could talk about at length as well, and they are in, running in parallel. And of course, you ha- you have you know when, when you see what's happening in uh, in West station and the the the, uh, the the kind of clamp that, that that Yemen has on the Red Sea, we ha- we saw I think the other day the Iranians being responsible for uh, for stopping boats coming in through the Straits of Gibraltar. Uh, in the in the Western Mediterranean, uh, and we've also seen boats being attacked as far far east as the Indian Ocean, and so there looks like there's a when you say there's not a central coordination, they're not not a single block. Well, of course that's true; they're not a single block, and they have uh, independence. In October the seventh was a Palestinian uh, venture, wasn't ordered from Tehran, etc. But nevertheless, the the axis of resistance is an actual uh, coordinating body, such that, for example, both. In Gaza, there is a coordination room where all the 10 military factions fighting uh, the Israelis coordinate on a daily basis. And um, we we have to assume, because this was the case in in 2020 and 2021, that there's a coordination room in Beirut, which of course was where the uh, deputy leader of Hamas was assassinated, and the two Qasem Brigade commanders were assassinated. There's a coordination room in Beirut, which of course features uh, representatives of uh, all of the Palestinian factions uh, of Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon, and indeed of the Quds Force of the the Islamic Republic's uh, um, uh, uh, Guards Corps. Uh, and I'd imagine, too, that the the popular mobilisation squads, the Hashtar al-Shabi uh, of Iraq is involved in that. And let's remember that in Iraq there are themselves something like 22 or 23 different armed factions currently fighting uh, the the Americans and indeed the Israelis and I maybe pause for a second on this because people don't necessarily know there are of course U.S bases in Syria illegal U.S bases in Syria there are U.S bases in Iraq mm-hmm. and of course there are uh Israeli bases in the Golan Heights which of course is uh, you know territorially part of Syria but which is occupied by Israel and if you can think of your geography of the area you've got Lebanon and then you've got Syria and then you've got Jordan and you've got Iraq now, some of the Iraqi resistance people are, are, are firing missiles into the Golan Heights, and into American bases in Syria from Iraq. So it's a very, as you say, complicated process. But there is coordination with the resistance factions there. And they themselves conceive of this in terms of what they call an escalation ladder. So just to give you one example of that, um, Hezbollah has a declared five kilometre um, depth from the border from, uh, in, into Israel, which it is uh, part, which is part of its military operations, and it will not go beyond five kilometers, unless and until there's specific Israeli escalations, which there have been some of, at which point Hezbollah has gone beyond the five kilometers and used, b- broken out some of its l- slightly longer-range missiles. But I don't know if people understand this that that um, Hezbollah has has thousands and thousands of medium range missiles, not one of which has been used in the conflict so far. Now these medium range missiles can reach as far as Tel Aviv and indeed uh, Jerusalem. So they can reach almost the entire territory of Israel. And these are much more significant missiles than the ones which uh, um, Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad are able to, to field from Gaza. So there is a, a massive, um, Hinterland of weaponry and strategy, which has not yet been used in this this case, and if the escalation happens, then it's it's going to be very serious. But it the, it shouldn't be imagined that Israel can just continue with this campaign of assassinations, the four separate um mass killings that each I suppose each well one was one person which they have done in the last week or so. There will be a response, and the responses have been. You know, it's been noted in iran and in damascus and in iraq and indeed in, in lebanon that there will be responses to these attacks but they haven't come yet and we wait to see i guess with some trepidation, what's going to happen as a result
1: so that brings us and uh, thank you for that outline. I think that's good to have the perspective on um, what is the axis of resistance. By the way, when I talk about this with some of my American colleagues, David, they really don't know what I'm talking about. That to me is quite shocking. But anyway, that's for another discussion. Um, the so let's get back to Gaza. Israel's objectives when they launched this shock and awe campaign, uh, which is now ended up in potentially the international courts of justice now with South Africa invoking the genocide convention, but they said, we need to, we're going to end Hamas. They laid out all these objectives, uh, David, and it doesn't look like maybe you can elucidate a little bit more on this, that they've achieved any of those, but it it's all couched under messaging. There is a, there's a series of standard talking points. One of them is Israel has a right to defend itself. Okay. Let's start from there because that's, that point is going to be the argumentative point that begins the international courts of justice trial when it eventually comes the israeli defense more or less will be you know leaned on on that point uh, this is all part of a broader discussion about propaganda but um let's let's try to understand this a little better david but go ahead so um the the
3: it's been a, it, My contention is that what they have done in the last um, 10, 12 weeks, however long it is now, has been um, born out of uh, a sense of powerlessness and a sense of bloodlust, essentially. They want to kill as many Palestinians as possible. Uh, And there's a strategic element to it, too, which is, of course, that they want to drive the rest out. Um, and it's bloodlust because they feel powerless because they they know that they cannot defeat the resistance factions. They they haven't even defeated the smallest of the resistance factions. People don't know, I guess, that there are eight, eight or ten resistance factions. So I mean, in addition to to Hamas with the Qasim brigades and the Palestinian Liberation Jihad with their Al Quds brigades, there's of course the the the, the, the PFLP. Uh, another faction of the PFLP, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, there's the Mujahideen Brigades, there's the Popular Resistance Committees, etc, etc. So there's a huge number of organisations there, including, of course, let's let's remember, uh, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, which is an armed group, which would appear to have some relationship to Fatah, which is the organisation which, of course, leads the collaborationist Palestinian Authority. So you, you have a, an extraordinary range of groups there. Um, Three, four, five of them, perhaps secularist and maybe uh, formerly Marxist, uh, and the rest of them all uh, Islamically orientated, and they are all working closely together, as I said, in their operations room uh, within Gaza, and they—they they haven't been defeated. They—if you follow the telegrams closely, you see there has been the occasional Qasem uh, fighter killed, which they, which has been announced, and perhaps they're—they're they're not saying. Uh, about some of them but it's pretty clear that they they haven't lost significant numbers of of, uh, fighters whereas it's very clear that the uh israelis have lost very significant numbers of fighters they're claiming i think that they've lost something like 160 by now Uh, but it's very very clear if you watch all the telegrams that various different streams that come out from different sides that there are some very very serious losses of life which have ha- which have been inflicted on the IDF something like 700 military vehicles including tanks uh um bl- blown up and destroyed it's been suggested that the two helicopters have been shot down in the last few days by the resistance forces each of these tanks uh c- contains four maybe more uh personnel There have been really a large number of spectacularly planned uh uh ambushes so i mean I, only in the last few days i've seen uh Cassim brigades talk about minefields which by which they i think they mean previously planted minefields done weeks perhaps months ago where and they just wait until the idf is within those minefields and then they remotely detonate them and that's leading to really very significant idf casualties and we're not seeing anything like Uh, a true representation of that from Israel. One one way we know that, I think, is through the the northern front. So Hezbollah have lost, I think, more than 150 uh, of their fighters. And each time one of their fighters uh, is killed, they put out, they've got a formal studio portrait of the fighter. uh, And they they name them, they see where they're from. Uh, It it looked from uh, about a month ago that the IDF had lost something like 200 in in the north. And there was a famous moment where an Israeli journalist, I don't, I'm not sure how they got into there, but they wandered into this, um, this container, opened the container, and inside the container, uh, uh, along the wall, for, for, like in bunk beds with four bunks, there was, there was 30 or 40 dead bodies, which had not been announced by the IDF. Right? So we we don't know what the total is, but they're clearly losing large numbers of people, and they they're clearly losing. And so, of course, they had to remove the the Galani Brigade uh, two or three weeks ago, um, uh, because first of all, a quarter of its entire um, force was wiped out on October the seventh itself, and then another quarter was wiped out uh, during the uh, land incursion, the ground incursion into Gaza. That's the elite, uh, one of the elite battalions of the of the IDF, and then of course they. Just the other day removed two or three other um, uh, groups from gaza probably to pivot to the north to to lebanon because they want to provoke hezbollah and to, to try and bring the americans back in but they are losing very very badly there uh, and it's quite quite clear that i mean even the, the israelis themselves have said now some of them that uh they can't defeat hamas they, i mean they say it in they tend to say it in terms like we can't defeat an idea like hamas and of course that's true but what they also mean is that they can't actually defeat the practical hamas uh, and the other factions in the tunnels um, because they didn't they don't know about the tunnels so it appears they don't have the proper intelligence and they are at risk of being um uh, ambushed at any uh, any moment in the territory which belongs to the fighters of gaza
1: you know, they're running into the same sort of problems David that uh, the Americans ran into in Iraq that uh, even the Syrian Arab Army has run into during its long and dirty civil war over a decade in places like East Aleppo and various neighborhoods in Damascus and beyond that uh, it's very very difficult uh, to do urban warfare especially if you're not able to counter uh the account the insurgency that's being waged against a, a conventional force um, it's it's very, very uh, worthy of more analysis. We're going to take a break, However, and when we come back, I want to talk about a, what really happened on October seventh and how that was used, the disinformation, the the fake stories, the fabricated reports, and how they were used to motivate the Israeli state, the armed forces, and to get the backing of the international community. Why is that significant? We'll discuss that with David Miller, our guest, after these messages. I'm Patrick Kennington, your host. This is TNT. Today's News Talk, we'll be right back.
2: When a crisis hits, close to home and across the globe, nonprofits are on the front lines, ready to serve. keep coming, keep, coming, keep coming. The demand for charitable services has skyrocketed. And nonprofits are rising to meet the needs. Healing, nurturing, rescuing, honoring, protecting, caring, inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations of all sizes across all missions has never been more important. And it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you. Together, we change the world. The Nonprofit Alliance. I said, could she die? And the doctor said, she could. It was so scary. when I started clawing at my neck and trying to breathe, and I thought, you
0: know, what are we gonna do if I die here? (laughs) How's everyone gonna go on?
2: When someone's gravely sick or injured in the bush, they rely on the Royal Flying Doctor Service. But now the Flying Doctor needs your help to fund vital medical equipment and supplies. Please search Flying Doctor online to give a regular gift of just $10. You can help equip the Flying Doctor's teams to respond to any emergency anywhere. Search Flying Doctor online. Become a part of the Royal Flying Doctor service and help save lives in the bush.
0: Speaking on the issues that impact, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT
1: Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back to TNT Today's News Talk. This is the Patrick Kenningson Show. Appreciate your listenership, your viewership as well. Hello to everybody in the TNT chat community. I see we have some healthy numbers in there. Uh, I'll be interacting with you a bit more in the second hour, but we really appreciate you guys. I've got a great community there. That's where you want to be hanging out during the program. Just go to tntradio.live, lower right-hand corner. You'll see the little red bubble there. Just log in. It'll keep you logged in for future sessions, but get involved in the community there it's a great group of people now we're going to go back to our discussion here very special guest joining us right now david miller He's also co-host of a fantastic program on press tv Palestine declassifies co-hosting with Chris Williamson. It's a dynamic duo to say the least, but one of the best sources of information on the current uh, situation right now, the historic conflict, this historic crisis going on in the Middle East. Now, David, uh, before the break, uh, we sort of introduce a potential segue here. Let's talk about October 7th, but the phenomenon of October 7th, or 10-7 as it's been rebranded, like 9-11, the messaging that's come out. And uh, the, the motto of, is it, it, I used to think this was uh, possible, some sort of construct or something, but the motto of Israeli intelligence services is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the translation is, by deception thou shalt wage war. Um, But the Mossad intelligence services, but isn't that what we saw on October 7th, the massive campaign, all of these fantastic stories that came out, that's really what motivated and in the end, what, what, what provided the, the the seemingly provide the justification for this uh, massive uh, military, uh, the carpet bombing, the ongoing genocide in Gaza. Uh, the international community rallying behind Israel immediately after many in the international community, not all many, but just explain to us what happened here. Because David, if true reporting, you know, would have uh, held the day there and people would have waited and been a little skeptical as to some of these claims, I think it might have changed the overall conversation, but that didn't happen. Unfortunately, go ahead, David.
3: Well, it didn't happen and it still in a way isn't happening. Let me explain what I mean by that. So when the uh, resistance forces broke out of Gaza, they broke out by bulldozers, bulldozing fences, by uh, light uh, aircraft, um, I'm not, uh, hang gliders perhaps is the terminology, flying over the fence. Some of them came by boat. Uh, there is actually a Kassam um, Brigade's underwater sub, sub-aqua division as well, uh, which we've seen in some of the videos which have come out since since then. And what they aimed to do was um, certainly to um, attack the IDF, the Occupation Forces, uh, and then to get hostages as well. But it looks like there may have been an aim uh, to actually reach the West Bank, and they they were in the end they they went through settlement after settlement, and they re- were really not very far from the West Bank. Um, by the time they they were sort of repelled, it took a long time to repel them. Now, just to, to go on to what happened, the, of course, the official story was um, fourteen hundred dead, uh, and um, many hundreds of civilians among them. And of course, what then happened was in as this the story went on, was that we. Had um, reporting on who these people were, who were dead, and whether there was two hundred and fifty or three hundred at the festival, which was right beside the Gaza fence, um, and um, how many uh, others had been killed in the various of the, of the kibbutzim, uh, for example, in particular, kibbutz Beeri, which is one of the main places uh, of confrontation. Uh, and the, and Haaretz, the liberal Zionist newspaper, was compiling the data and the names of all the individuals who had been killed. And of course, after a while, it became clear that fourteen hundred people hadn't been killed. The, the Israelis then conceded, after a while, that uh, two hundred of the those who had killed had been resistance fighters, and they had been so badly um, charred in the most instances that they was they, they were unable to recognise that they were resistance fighters. And there is the clue, um, which we'll come back to in, a, in short, very shortly. So that left you with 1,200 and then of course the figures were revised down again to, to 1,000 and of those 1,000 I think 371 were IDF or police or other security personnel, armed militia members from the kibbutzim because of course the kibbutzim, uh, all the kibbutzims are armed uh, and um, so you had something like, I don't know, 500 or 600 alleged civilians uh, killed. And then it became apparent that uh, what was happening, well, there's two things to say. One, for, then then of course, let's deal with the question of atrocities, first of all, uh, and, and come back to the civilian deaths. First of all, atrocities. So there was mass rape, uh, a woman's pelvis was broken because she was raped so violently, another woman had her breasts chopped off, etc, 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 mass rape. Uh, and it was even said by the Israelis that um, particular um, Hamas commanders had been have been given the names of particular female IDF personnel to rape. And stuff like that, which is, they, of course, uh, quietly removed from the uh, the, the various uh, reports of it. And, of course, there was also the question of the, the, the beheaded children and babies. And it was said there were 40 uh, children or babies, some of whom had been beheaded. And sometimes they said all 40 had been beheaded. Uh, and then, of course, that story collapsed. Like both of those stories have collapsed, the beheaded uh, story collapsed quite rapidly. But it didn't stop the Israelis making use of it. They st- in fact, to this day, there are still Israeli propagandists talking about beheaded babies or beheadings, uh, and and it doesn't seem to matter that everybody knows, or everybody who's paying any attention knows that these are false stories. We know that there was was there were no babies killed at all uh, uh, in uh, on that day. There was a, one child, I think, between the age of three and, uh, 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 and seven who was just killed, and then I think Heretz removed that from the figures. Anyhow, no babies were overheaded. Were there was a story about a baby being baked in an oven. That turned out not to be the case either, and, uh, uh, and all, all of that story fell away. Similarly with rapes, the stories on rapes were quite quickly dropped by the Israelis until more, much more recently they were brought back by that New York Times investigation uh, sourced to various uh um people and individuals which of course has been very effectively debunked by uh, max blumenthal uh, and others at gray zone and, and and other independent journalists so all of these stories of atrocities almost without exception uh have been debunked uh, it doesn't stop these israelis from trying to use them again and recycling them and giving them to the journalists again who then pretend that this, this is new information when of course it's not so that's the atrocities that is the now the civilians of course they what happened with the civilians? And we still uh, don't know exactly what happened, but what we do know uh, is that there's a, a, a directive inside the IDF called the Hannibal Directive, which was previously secret, which only became uh, um, public some years ago, uh, and then it was then revised at that stage. And the Hannibal Directive means that there—that there's a, 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 a permission is given to the IDF to kill hostages. Should it mean that they are able to kill terrorists, i.e., resistance fighters, at the same time? And so people started to conjecture was there any sense in which Hannibal had, ha- had happened or been authorized that day? Well, what would the evidence be for that? Well, the evidence, of course, was that first of all, we found out that tanks had been used in Kibbutz Beeri and other places, and they'd been shelling houses, and that, at which point it becomes apparent that the reason why the bodies are charred. And the houses are burnt to the ground when the resistance factions are armed at best with light weaponry maybe rpgs etc so it became apparent that that all the burning and incineration was first of all from the tanks the the shelling of tanks uh, by tanks of uh, of kibbutz buildings and secondly of what seems to have been a massive um firefight uh, of uh, apache helicopters now they were shooting apparently grenades but also hellfire missiles i mean hellfire missiles are really very significant weaponry and they were shooting hellfire missiles at anybody who moved because they didn't have any intelligence because of course uh, in the in uh, uh, the flood the first thing that the resistance fighters had done was to disable all the intelligence they were blind and so they just shot at anything that moved they weren't being given targeting advice And, of course, what that meant was that they killed very, many civilians. And anyone who's seen the video footage put out by the IDF itself of all the cars recovered um, from outside the festival, uh, almost all, I think, from outside the festival, you can see there's something like three or four or five hundred cars, and maybe half of them have been incinerated. Now, probably without exception, those incinerations have been accomplished by hellfire missiles or possibly tank shells. Being fired at cars with uh, festival goers uh, in them trying to flee. And of course, they, I mean, there's some examples, isn't there? I, mean, I don't know if you remember, there was footage at the time of, of people running on foot to get away from the festival. And that was because they realized if they got in their car and drove north, they would encu- they would encounter uh, armed police who'd block the road. So many of them went the other way at which point, presumably, helicopter pilots assumed that they were they were um, Hamas or resistance fighters and simply killed them all. So very many of these civilians, we don't know exactly how many, whether it's half, whether it's uh, almost all, were killed by the IDF themselves. Uh, and of course, there's very little recognition of that in the mainstream, although it's pretty clear if you read in detail the, the accounts. Now, it's clear that that the resistance factions did kill some individuals. Sometimes they were uh, as the resistance factions themselves put it, by mistake, uh, and in other cases because they were resisting uh, uh, the actions of the resistance fighters. So it's clearly they did kill some civilians, um, but it's very it's also clear that uh, by far the most significant evidence we have of killing civilians is of the IDF itself doing those killings. But what I said at the beginning, you know, but, but it, it seems not to make any difference. That, that both with the, the rape claims. Less with the the baby beheadings, but certainly with the the baby baking in the oven claim. uh, These are these are claims which come back time and time again. Just seem to matter how many many times they're debunked, and sometimes they're given to the media again by the same sources who have been discredited by proper investigations by investigative journalists and uh, independent journalists. But nevertheless, they don't give up. It's that you. It's like we expect people to play by the rules, and if they found out, you know, if if they're found out to be lying. They'll, go, they'll say, oh, okay, sorry, we, yeah, we've got that wrong. But no, there's no such admission. Uh, and that, that's, of course, the difficulty is that, that wave after wave after wave of the same stories being recycled, uh, and it gets traction in the mainstream. And of course, it, it, which is this is the premise of your question, it, it helps to legitimize the genocide, and helps to make sure that people like Joe Biden or Rishi Sunak will, or other Western leaders, will go along with the claims remember the uh, Biden's White House had to walk back the claims he'd seen the photographs of the beheaded babies of course there were no such photographs so th- it helps to legitimize that and it helps to make it more difficult for people to hold their leaders to account in the West uh, um, and you know it, it insulates them to, to some extent from popular anger and there's a very great measure of popular anger uh, in every Western country as well as in the rest of the world
1: there's two, two, two things that you've just uh, you know, revealed there, David. One is that the uh, Israeli military is um, not very well-trained, uh, not very well-organized, um, and a little bit uh, ham-fisted when it comes to avoiding civilian casualties. Of course, that's now become a sort of a, a, a unfortunate low standard that they have established now in the history uh, with Gaza. And that's going to be adjudicated over in the World Court. But the worst thing here, David, is, and of course you can speak to this, so I'll give you your final, quickly your final thoughts, yet another uh, propaganda-driven atro- uh, war, a mass atrocity based on fake news, based on emotive propaganda in the immediate aftermath. David, final thoughts, and we'll we'll break for this segment, but uh, go ahead. So, of
3: course, since October the 7th, we've seen this uh i've used the word bloodlust several times now but it's really bloodlust um and because it's because of their fury that they they know really that they can't defeat the resistance factions and of course they still have this plan you know we've seen the leaked documents haven't we of the architects planning the beachfront apartments where there used to be palestinian homes and we see that that's part of their agenda that they want to remove all the palestinians Uh, and then take control but of course that's not really on the agenda the US doesn't want that uh, and they're talking about what's going to happen after after uh, Gaza is pacified but it doesn't look like Gaza is going to be pacified Uh, and so I think that we're, we're we're in for another long period of propaganda but I think what's happened in the last two months is that for many many millions of people the mask on what Zionism is has slipped. And people now see, many millions of people more than previously, see that Zionism is incorrigibly, uh, fundamentally racist. Its very nature is about ethnic cleansing, and of course thus about genocide. Uh, And that is something which they can't put back in the box. It doesn't matter how much propaganda they devote, how many Western allies they have to, to, to back them up, they can't put that back in the box because millions and millions of people see the truth about uh, about Israel. And that means, in, in the context of a, a weakened U.S., that they're going to lose. And, of course, uh, this is, I suppose, this is the thing yeah,
1: yeah, we're out of time, I mean, David. Is, but David Miller, at Tracking Power on, on X twitter co-host of Palestine Declassified. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back, top of our news headlines coming up.